This is a news update from the University of Portsmouth. I'm Emma Gaysford. A new United Nations report calls for an urgent change in the way the world's oceans are managed. Lead author of the report, Professor Steve Fletcher, director of the University of Portsmouth's Revolution Plastics Initiative, talked to me about how life in our oceans will continue to be destroyed without a coordinated global response. We need to recognise that the ocean is the connector between countries, between people, between habitats. Steve, can you give us a little background about what the report is about, please? The report focuses on the relationship between land-based activities like agriculture, forestry, urbanisation, those sorts of things, with coastal resources like fish stocks, biodiversity at the coast, salt deposits, water quality, those sorts of coastal resources. Because so much of what happens on land generates impact in the sea, and as a result of that impact, the coastal resource base changes. And if the coastal resource base changes, that impacts on what's called the blue economy. And these are the activities that depend upon coastal resources to be useful to society in some way. Things like um, beach tourism or aquaculture, those sorts of activities that really depend upon a high quality coastal environment. Can you tell me why you were chosen by the UN to, to author such a significant report? The International Resource Panel is a group of around 40 scientists who collectively represent a whole range of different disciplines, from architects to economists, Um, to biodiversity experts. My background is in ocean resources and the management of ocean resources. So I was asked to join the panel to represent that expertise uh, in the group. And I've been working in that area for at least 20 years and uh, I'm part of that time working for the UN Environment Programme itself. In the report, you call for urgent help and change for the world's oceans. What is it that actually needs to be done? The ocean is facing three interconnected crises. They are crises of pollution, of climate impact, and of the loss of nature, the loss of biodiversity. Uh, Pollution, we all know about the plastic problem facing the ocean. Uh, Climate change, the ocean is, is warming and it's becoming more acidic. And we know that biodiversity or the plants and animals in the ocean uh, are really suffering, uh, partly as a result of pollution and climate impacts, but also as a result of things like over-exploitation. So something like 90% of all fish stocks are currently overfished, for example, and that is really creating a negative impact on the, the natural living environment within the ocean. And why have they got into this current state? You know, was there a turning point? We've got into this state, I think, largely because there hasn't really been a recognition of the impacts of our everyday lifestyles, our economy, uh, and the way we use resources uh, on the ocean. I think for a lot of people, the ocean is out of sight, it's out of mind, it's, as, it's perceived to be so big that you know, no pollution can really affect it that much. But we're beginning to realise that that just isn't the case. I guess you could argue from the Industrial Revolution onwards, we've been working towards this point where the pressure on the ocean is just increasing and increasing. And we're now recognising that in a way we haven't recognised before. And 
the role of the ocean in tackling climate change and tackling global biodiversity loss is really important and it's you know, over 70 percent of our planet and so you know we have to take it seriously as as a, a challenge we have to face uh, and i think tackling the the interconnected ocean problems of of nature loss climate and pollution just tackling those things alone would really make a huge positive contribution to global sustainability on land not just in the ocean Gosh, it really puts it into perspective, actually, when you when you say it's seventy percent of our planet. So the report says that land-based activity accounts for eighty percent of marine and coastal pollution. Do people causing these issues on the land realise what they're doing? Hope not. <laughs> um, I think some activities are so far from the coast or so far from the sea that people don't even consider that it would have an effect on the marine environment. So somebody doing forestry 500 kilometres from the coastline may not be actively considering the impact of their activities on the marine environment. But we know from our report that actually there are significant impacts generated from forestry, no matter how far it is from the ocean, on the marine environment, the marine and coastal environment. Most of the activities that take place on land are highly regulated activities. So agriculture is very highly regulated. Um, forestry is pretty highly regulated as well. Aquaculture, the farming of, of fish on land, is incredibly regulated. And so there's also a responsibility for governments as well to recognise that the activities they're regulating have impacts way beyond their immediate vicinity and that those impacts have costs to those very same governments. It's just a, 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 an economic saving, actually. Have, have governments and world leaders been turning a blind eye to this? I don't know. That's a difficult question. I think world leaders are increasingly recognising the value of the ocean to their national economies. Uh, they're recognising the role of the ocean as a pathway to tackle climate change and build resilience uh, against some of the extreme events associated with the climate change. Whether they've been turning a blind eye, uh, I don't know. I think certainly small islands in the Pacific who've been leading the call for action on ocean conservation and climate action, they absolutely have not been turning a blind eye. This is core business for them and for their islands. Collectively, we have a lot to thank them for because they are the ones who've been really driving this agenda and driving this debate, which thankfully now is becoming more mainstreamed. There is also a new international agreement currently working its way through the UN process to improve the management of the high seas. So these are areas that have historically been beyond the reach of individual countries and so have been something of a free-for-all when it comes to resource use. Hopefully, if the new agreement goes through in the next couple of years, for the first time, that will allow us to create marine protected areas in the high seas. It will also impose a management regime on those areas, which hopefully will remove some of the extremes of resource use that takes place uh, in those locations. 
And that's really important because the high seas accounts for the vast majority of the ocean space that we have. So really what you're saying is that action needs to be coordinated across countries and, and continents. Yes, that, that's exactly it. We need to recognise that the ocean is the connector between countries, between people, between habitats, and underpins so much of our cultural and economic life. And we can't divide the ocean up into our bit and their bit because all of it is dependent on every other bit. If we all begin to look after the bits of the ocean that we're responsible for, then the whole ocean recovers, the whole ocean gets the benefit and the whole of society, global society, gets the benefit too. What difference will it make to all of us if things don't change? If we do nothing, the loss of nature in the sea will continue and probably accelerate. The climate impacts of warming and acidification will also continue to grow and accelerate. And that has huge implications for how uh, species can survive in those changing conditions. If we do nothing to tackle pollution, then our plastics problem will continue to get worse. And the ocean would really just become a bit of a dumping ground really for, for human waste. The ocean will begin to, to die in various places. It will become deoxygenated and it, it will just stop producing the benefits that as a society we need. That sounds very sobering, Steve. Can you give us an example of, of something that might happen if we don't do any action? Perhaps the most high profile casualty of a warming ocean and an acidifying ocean are coral reefs. And already we've lost around 50% of the world's coral reefs to ocean acidification and ocean warming. It's easy to sort of question, well, does that matter? Well, at one level, it, it matters on a ethical level, on a principled level, that what gives us the right to knowingly destroy an amazingly diverse and rich habitat that's taken tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years to form in the first place. But just from a practical basis, coral reefs protect coastlines from storms, which you know, helps people not have their homes flooded potentially or avoids billions of pounds or dollars of, of investment to, to restore those towns and cities. Coral reefs are amazing nursery areas for fish and our commercial fisheries would begin to be undermined if we lost all coral reefs. And coral reefs, of course, are, are this amazing resource for, for tourism, for recreation. So there is this sense of impending loss if we do nothing. What, what is happening at the University of Portsmouth to help raise awareness with research, innovation into this problem? The University of Portsmouth is already working on a lot of these problems, conducting research that are relevant to practical, real-world solutions. So, for example, through our Revolution Plastics activities, we're drawing together an immensely broad range of research and innovation activities focused on solving the negative effects of plastics on uh, society and, and on the environment. So, for example, we're actively looking at how 
plastic pollution in, in seawater affects the growth of certain uh, marine species uh, and how um, coastal habitats capture um, plastics in the structure of the plants themselves. We're looking at how breathing in plastic can affect people's health. We're looking at new and exciting ways of recycling plastics using technologies such as enzyme digestion, which allows us to almost entirely deconstruct plastic structures and rebuild them back at the same quality as they were before. So sidestepping a lot of the problems we have around the quality of plastics decreasing as they're recycled. So we're working across a range of different disciplines to really look at how we can institute systemic change into the plastics economy. Would lots of individuals taking small-scale action make any difference at all? Anything individuals can do will help to some extent. The scale of the plastic problem is, is immense. It's absolutely enormous. And it's difficult to really compute what an individual can do to contribute to that. But when we magnify that up, and we bring people together from all around the world to make a difference, then yes, absolutely, small actions can make a big difference. But we can't rely on that alone. What we really need is big business and governments and intergovernmental organisations to really get a grip of the, the plastics problem and look at how we move the plastics economy from being a linear economy where we make plastics, we use it and throw it away, to a more circular approach. What we're not trying to do is say that all plastics are bad and we should demonise all plastics and ban them all because plastics are incredibly useful. But we can't allow the plastics economy as it is right now to continue. Professor Steve Fletcher, thank you very much for talking to me today. If you'd like more information about the University of Portsmouth's Revolution Plastics Initiative, please email revolutionplastics at port.ac.uk.